1: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight in week four of Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine. And while the Ukrainian people continue to courageously resist, with Russian troops mostly stalled in their ground advances, it's become increasingly clear that Vladimir Putin has no qualms when it comes to slaughtering civilians. The U.S. State Department confirmed today that a U.S. citizen in the country for his partner's medical treatment was killed in an assault on civilians while waiting in a breadline in Cherniv a city that's directly on the path from Belarus to Kyiv. Russia continues to attack the Ukrainian capital, and it appears their strategy is to put the city under siege. Here's a dispatch from my colleague Richard Engel.
0: Russia has now clearly resorted to siege warfare. It has surrounded the city of Mariupol, and here in Kyiv, it seems that Russia wants to starve people out. This was one of the country's biggest food storage facilities, and it's completely destroyed.
1: It's a strategy that's been underway in the key port city of Mariupol, where I will warn you the images that you're about to see from a local hospital this week are graphic. Mariupol has been under siege for 16 days, with the Ukrainian government saying the situation is critical. 80 percent of housing has been destroyed and food is scarce. Hospital workers are doing their best to protect babies and incubators from shelling. Here's a Mariupol resident speaking Russian, describing the horrific situation as genocide.
2: Помогите! Это город жилой, жилые дома, сос. Помогите Мариуполю! Убивают детей, женщин. Больницы переполнены. Мы все здесь на что? Это что? Я не могу понять. Это геноцид.
1: Up to 1,000 people had been sheltering at a Mariupol drama theater, trying to avoid the deadly bombardment. And despite signs that read children in Russian at the back and in the front of the theater, Russia bombed it anyway. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, who sits on the Intelligence Committee, said this morning there's evidence that the Russians celebrated the fact that they were trying to kill children.
0: We know from some back-channel stuff that some encrypted apps that a lot of Russian military were using afterwards, they were cheering the fact that they had killed children. This wasn't some
1: accidental bombing. Thankfully, the bomb shelter survived the hit. But we don't yet know how many might have lost their lives in the attack. Residents were able to leave the besieged city today, many heading to the city of Zaporizhia, where Ukrainian musician Slava Vakarchuk posted a video of children at a hospital, which NBC has not independently verified. Vakarchuk said they were trying to get away from the Russian world, but the Russian army went after them, lost legs, torn internal organs. These are real signs of Russian love. The Ukrainian government said today that at least 108 children have died and more than 120 have been injured from the war so far. Meanwhile, Russia is trying to gaslight the entire world about what's happening in Ukraine. This morning, the spokeswoman for the Kremlin's Ministry of Foreign Affairs claimed that the atrocities that Russia is committing are really just fake videos staged by NATO. Late today, Russia's ambassador to the UN echoed that propaganda, claiming the West is engaged in a hyped campaign of lies and disinformation. Meanwhile, in his desperation, Putin is lashing out, threatening to cleanse Russia of pro-Western traitors and scum. It is clear that he's been humiliated on the battlefield, where morale is low, and he's reportedly lost four generals so far. One of those generals was killed after Ukrainian forces intercepted his phone call on an unsecure phone, geolocated it, and attacked his location, according to The New York Times. The problem is Putin will only stop when he realizes the war is unwinnable. And so far, he appears to be doubling down. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry in Lviv. Uh, Cal, give us the latest on what you know of where you are and elsewhere in Ukraine.
3: So, look, I think the story of the last 24 hours, as you saw in Richard's report, is we're now seeing the direct targeting of civilian infrastructures. This is how civilian populations survive. And we're seeing these things be taken out. So in Kharkiv, for example, in the northern part of the country, a marketplace, a food market directly targeted, we believe, by Grad Rockets. There is an extensive fire there. This, again, was one of the last places people could go and get food. You're seeing that video there. in Cherniv. and you talked about this, a bread line. At least 10 people, quote, gunned down, uh, and that according to the U.S. embassy in Kiev. Again, waiting in line for bread. In the city of Kiev, you have that grain factory, the largest supply of food for the city that has been uh, directly targeted. So it seems clear that the strategy here that the Russians are now imploring is not just to indiscriminately target civilians or directly target them as they leave these areas, as we reported on yesterday, but now to target the things that sustain life in these cities, to try to break the back of the civilian population. What is most fascinating about this and how you finished your lead in is the Russians seem to be taking incredible heavy casualties on the military front. We heard in the past hour or so from the deputy prime minister who said that she is working with the Red Cross uh, and they're talking about eventually transferring 14,000 dead Russian soldiers back to Russia. We can't independently verify that that number is accurate, except to say that in the last 30 minutes, we heard from President Zelensky, who has posted a new address to the nation in which he says in that address, we did not want nor did we expect the bodies of some 13,000 Russian soldiers. Again, we cannot independently verify these numbers, but we are now hearing from officials here on the ground in Ukraine, government officials, that those dead Russian soldiers could number in this upwards of 10,000. It's maybe an indication that these two things are connected, that Russian troops, Russian army and the officials and the generals who are now using uh, these unsecured lines um, are not making the military gains in the speed in which they should. Um, and so what they are doing is they are punishing the civilian population. And you saw it there in Mariupol. And it should be mentioned again, in that city, there are Russian soldiers who have put themselves in the main hospital of that city who are using patients, wounded civilians um, as human shields. It, it is a desperation that we have seen from the Russian army in places like Syria, in places like Grozny, but we are now seeing it play out across these eastern cities in, in Ukraine, um, where the situation is becoming so desperate that you have people who can't go above ground for food anymore out of fear of shells and because, Joy, there's no more food.
1: Yeah. Cal, if I can just quickly ask you, I mean, you've been a correspondent that's covered conflicts uh, and covered, uh, you know, these kinds of situations before. Uh, I just wonder if it surprises you how sort of third weight, third rate the Russian army has turned out to be. This sounds like a ragtag army um, that doesn't have a hell of a lot of combat experience, let alone the kind of experience that could allow them, you know, they could lay waste to the capital, but it doesn't seem like the kind of army that could hold, take and hold it.
3: Yeah. So a few things absolutely have, have shocked me. One, um, the body of Russian soldiers in the streets of Kharkiv. So that tells us that Russia doesn't even control the battle space on the ground in the places that they're invading. I have never seen a modern army leave the bodies of soldiers behind. It is something the U.S. Army has as part of their code, as part of the mantra in some of these units. We don't leave anybody behind. Um, I, I've never seen that in a conflict where the invading army is, is either pushed away so hard hard um, or so disorganized that they don't control it. The Turkish drones, we talked so long about this 40-mile convoy outside of Kiev, right, of these armored vehicles that had basically been stalled, some of them stuck in the mud, stuck in the cold, running out of fuel. Turkish drones have been strafing these armored uh, convoys. They've been killing a high number of Russian soldiers. These are very basic drones that should be able to be shot out, or jammed. So there is an incompetence that the Russian army is showing very quickly. You know, it is scaring people here. This idea that Putin is being pushed into a corner. Right. What could he do? How big could the bombs get? Could he bomb here? That's a fear. But your point is absolutely right. Joy, the army has not done what it thought it would do.
1: Yeah, it's so much for them being a superpower. Um, Cal Perry. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. I'm joined now by Tom Nichols, contributing writer at The Atlantic, and Charles Carithers, former staffer for the House Homeland Security Committee, advising Chairman Benny Thompson, who is now principal of the consulting firm Cornerstone Government Affairs. Tom, I have to ask you the same question. I mean, you you teach uh, students of war. Um, You teach uh, our our war makers. Um, I I have been, frankly, stunned. I mean, the the, the idea that there were sort of two big superpowers, the United States and Russia, was predicated on the idea that Russia had a lethal army. What this sounds like is sort of a terrorist gang um, they can inflict a lot of damage and kill a lot of people. But the stories of you know their army having to loot uh, because they don't have enough food to supply themselves, having to abandon their vehicles because they don't have enough fuel, this sounds like a ragtag third-rate army. Are you surprised by their lack of efficiency and the lack of efficiency with which this horrific invasion has um, been undertaken?
0: My expectations were low and the Russian army managed to get under them. Uh, you know, the even the Soviet military at at its height had discipline problems, um, had coordination and logistical problems because these are not. Um, soldiers that are trained to think on their feet I mean we're used to thinking about militaries like the US and modern European militaries um, where they prize things like initiative and leadership whereas the Russian military has always prized um, obedience and and uh, procedure. And they're paying for it now. I mean, they're poorly trained. Their officers don't care about them. They're they're the equivalent of their non-commissioned officer corps is uh, often brutal and cruel to their own recruits and conscripts. Um, and you know, when you throw a bunch of folks who've been trained uh, with that kind of brutality into a situation where they have to fight for their lives in a war they don't want, Um, This is what you're going to get. There is no other play other than to just unload all of your ammunition, flatten everything and then run when you're when you're being defeated.
2: Um, So
0: it's bad, but I didn't think I mean, I, I knew it would be bad. I didn't think it would be this bad.
1: Yeah indeed, and it brings us to the point, Charles Crozer, welcome to the show. I want to play for you what the MP Alexandra Ustinova, who was on with us yesterday, said about what, despite the sort of incompetency and messiness of the Russian military, what she said they still need, take a look.:
4: The support we received today, this package that President Biden announced, it is very helpful, but this is not enough. We have to stop the jets. Jets can be stopped with the jets. You cannot stop a jet with a javelin or a stinger or a drone. You need another plane to shoot the plane. We need the jets like MiGs or like SU-25 that we know how to fly. We're flying them now to put down their airplanes so they don't bomb our children. They don't bomb our women.
1: Actually, Charles, hold just one second because I want to ask Tom that question first. Given what you've seen, do you agree with this MP that jets would allow them to stop the slaughter?
0: the the problem is that most of the damage that's being done is being done by units that are from the ground. So they're getting hit by things like missiles and artillery. And I think, you know, I don't want to second guess the Ukrainian um, parliament or, or President Zelensky, but I think in part they want these jets um, first to keep their skies clearer than they are, but also as a symbol of commitment um, from, from the West to get those jets to them. But in terms of the things that are actually causing death and destruction on the ground um, those jets would have to go after uh, ground units that are really inflicting this damage that's that's really what's doing it the Russian Air Force um, if we were talking about the poor performance of the Russian army um, the Russian Army' done well compared to the miserable performance of the Russian Air Force which yeah. uh, just really has not been a major part of this fight I mean I I have to say I was shocked to to because I assumed that they would immediately go after the Ukrainian Air Force but something like like two-thirds of the Ukrainian Air Force is still flying um, mm. against, as you keep saying, Joy, supposedly a superpower. So I, I still think that the big problem for the Ukrainians is the stuff that's being fired from the ground at ground units and, and civilians rather than what's coming from uh, fighter jets or fighter bombers.
1: Uh, Charles, to bring you into this then, just whether or not it is the thing that would turn the tide the most, do you foresee the United States finding a way, some way, to simply go ahead and give them the jets anyway, if that's what they believe that they need, given how valiantly uh, and successfully they have so far repelled Russia.
5: Well, you know, we, we've all listened to the very powerful, impactful words of President Zelensky yesterday during the joint session of Congress invoking, invoking Dr. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. I have a dream for free and open skies. Um, President Biden and NATO has reaffirmed that there will not be a, a no-fly zone over over Ukraine. Uh, doing so would probably cause an escalation. I don't think that we're we're willing to swallow that escalation with
1: Russia. Let me ask you this question, though, Charles. Isn't the escalation already in play? I mean, you know, we may not want to be in World War 3 We're in World War Two and a half and a half, at least, because Russia has made it very clear that they are not responsive to the kind of sanctions, to the kind of sort of discipline that the global community can, you know, has at its disposal to put upon countries to get them to behave in civilized ways. This is a completely manic dictator in Russia right now. Do you think that it behooves the West, not just the United States, but the West in general, to think about this differently? It's not about avoiding conflict with Russia. We're already in conflict with Russia.
5: I, I think something has to be done. Uh, President Putin is an individual who has complete disregard for human life. At least 43 hospitals and medical facilities have been attacked, food lines. He has used chemical weapons before in the past. This individual wants to break you know, the will of Ukraine. The West is going to have to do something to further assist Ukraine, because I do not foresee Vladimir Putin and Russian forces holding back at all.
1: Clearly. Um, And it is it is a it is a puzzle how we get this to end. Tom Nichols, Charles Caruthers. Thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, how serious are the Russians about peace talks? Speaking of Russia and what might an agreement even look like? I'll be joined by former advisor to president an advisor to former President Zelensky. Also, the American companies who are still doing business in Russia, even as Russian troops murder innocent men, women and children. Plus, Putin's history of brutality, beginning with Chechnya and how Russia is now so toxic, so. Some Russians are starting to head for the exits and the firsthand accounts of a Zimbabwean medical student on the serious challenges Africans and other people of color face in trying to flee Ukraine and what she's doing to help others in the same situation. The readout continues after this.
6: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies
1: Even as the humanitarian crisis grows with each passing day of Russia's indiscriminate shelling of major Ukrainian cities, negotiations between the two countries have continued. This week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov claimed that parts of a Ukraine compromise deal were close. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, though understandably skeptical of anything coming out of Moscow, said peace talks were beginning to, quote, sound more realistic. Zelensky also acknowledged that Ukraine will not be joining NATO. Ukrainian neutrality is a key Russian demand. However, a Kremlin spokesman told Bloomberg News that a report of major progress in talks with Ukraine was wrong. Of course, even if the Ukrainian government and Russian negotiators were to come to some agreement, could anyone, let alone Ukraine, even trust Putin, who's now been described as a war criminal by both President Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken? Could anybody trust him to keep his promises after all of his previous lies, deception and land grabs? Yesterday he remained defiant in a manic speech to the Russian people, where he reiterated his baseless claims that Zelensky, who is Jewish, leads a pro-Nazi government that was committing genocide against Russian speakers and seeking nuclear weapons. He also claimed that his so-called special military operation, his euphemism for indiscriminately killing innocent civilians, was, quote, developing successfully and would, quote, be solved and soon as uh, solved as planned. I'm joined now by Igor Novikov, former advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And I guess that is my core question to you. Thank you for for coming back to the show, Igor. um, Why would anyone trust any deal with Putin?
7: Well, first of all, hi. uh, Who says we trust that deal? Um, Let me remind you that this war actually started out of the previous deal we made with Russia called the Minsk agreements, And, you know, that kind of did stop the fighting, de-escalate the fighting, because Ukrainian soldiers were still dying. But at the same time, you know, it didn't lead to peace. It didn't resolve any problems. So, you know, this is my personal opinion. First of all, I think... These negotiations are a smokescreen and a delay tactic for Russia, you know, and until or unless there's an off ramp for Putin uh, and sustainable pressure from the West and from the Ukrainian army, I think these talks will not lead to anywhere of course, there's another possibility. If he wants to switch his attention elsewhere, so try and test out Article Five in the Baltics, or focus on Belarus and then Poland, then maybe he'd uh, accept the new version of a Minsk Agreement with Russia or with Ukraine, and kind of and hang 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 that conflict for, you know for a few months or years.
1: You know, and, and, you know, I have to show you this picture. This is a Ukrainian journalist named Stanislav uh, Asayev had had a tweet about this little, adorable, 11-year-old Ukrainian little boy. He said he's going to go defend his country. He went to go and, and sign up. Um, he was handed back to his mom by Ukrainian soldiers. Um, and the tweet says, this is something Moscow will never understand. I mean, the resolve of Ukrainians is so solid and so thorough that it is impossible for me to imagine Ukraine being defeated, um, but it's also impossible for me to imagine an end to this war. because. Because um, I don't believe that the dictator of Russia is sane, just to be blunt. And so my question is, is it—does it make sense for people to try to give Putin an off-ramp? This idea that, that Ukraine would say, OK, we won't join NATO, the idea that, you know, the other demands are that they demilitarize. So they're basically saying, disarm yourself, stop fighting, don't join NATO for what? Security guarantees What did Ukraine get for giving up its nukes? Security guarantees, and here Russia is. So I wonder if there is an off-ramp that exists, because all the off-ramps would seem to me to invite Russia to come back and and take more chunks of Ukraine.
7: Well, there is an off-ramp, actually not an off-ramp, but a weapon that can be used against Putin. And to explain that weapon, first of all, let me explain to you why President Zelensky stayed in Kiev and why he feels you know, relatively comfortable and safe in Kiev. That's because of uh, nearly 2 million angry Ukrainians surrounding him in Kiev. And, you know, that's the best security anyone can ask for. So, look, whilst everyone is trying to assess, you know, the military strategy and what's happening on the battlefield, uh, you know, the main war is happening in Russia at the moment. If you carefully study, you know, the history of the Soviet Union, you know, there are two periods in time in the in the uh, Soviet Union when it grew weaker. Uh, that was the Khrushchev era of the detente, and then, you know, Glasnost of Gorbachev. Both times, you know, um, The USSR leaders kind of led the West into the hearts and minds of, you know, the Russian people and kind of the Soviet people and showed them, you know, there can be another way. So, what Putin is doing now, he's trying to focus all his attention into, inwards, into, you know, into Russia and try and get rid of what he calls the fifth column and also to kind of finish brainwashing the Russian population. When he kind of cements that echo chamber, that bubble, you know, surrounding Russia, I think that's where the real danger starts for the world, not only for Ukraine. Because then he can, you know, with the support of his population, he doesn't care about the Western reaction, he doesn't care about the sanctions. I mean, any dictator, if he, sell, if, if, if he sells, you know, his cause to the uh, to his own people, you know, they'll, they'll die of hunger with a smile on their face. So I think that's where his main focus lies at the moment. And if he's, if he finishes what he started. Then we're in danger. Then, you know, all the peace, talk, peace talks will fail, you know, with Ukraine. Then he will test out Article 5 and he'll, he'd be incredibly trigger happy. You have to remember that both Gorbachev and Khrushchev were hesitant to use nuclear weapons, to use chemical weapons and so on and so forth. Uh, Putin, I fully agree with you, is completely unhinged. So as the only kind of the only group he fears is the Russian people. So once he's done, you know, kind of cementing the echo chamber, that's when we're in trouble. And that's why I have to, you know, I I really want to kind of point out what Arnold Schwarzenegger did yesterday. He directly addressed the Russian people. He opened up a telegram channel for the Russian Mm -hmm. population. I think that urgently needs to be done by anyone who's got a fan base in Russia. Why? Because, I mean... Unless we reach them first, unless we show them what's happening in Ukraine, because most people in Russia kind of don't even know what's happening in Ukraine. They think, you know, some random weird Nazis are bombing those hospitals. You know, that's what they truly believe. And we we know that for a fact. So unless we win the information war, we're risking a major escalation to this conflict, both in Ukraine and globally. So that's the most important bit.
1: So we have—and we have a clip of it, and, and uh, I don't know that we have it right now, but you're absolutely right. I watched that. It was about a, It's about an eight-minute clip. I hope everyone will watch it on social media. I retweeted it, but um, it's on Arnold Schwarzenegger's Twitter feed as well. So, so you believe that more sort of celebrities—because that, that's global. That's universal. Everybody loves stars and celebrities, and Arnold Schwarzenegger has connections. He's shot films in Red Square. You know, he is a, a, a sort of international celebrity. Is that what you think should be done, that more people who can crack through the echo chamber—people— People who are stars, celebrities, there he is, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you think that's something that more celebrities should do?
7: Well, that's something that we're actually missing, you know, from this equation because, I mean, we are getting military support and we're great, grateful for that. I mean, the sanctions are beginning to work and we need more consolidation. I mean, the business, you know, the multinational business needs to leave Russia, but apart from companies like Nestle and, you know, a couple of others, you know, the majority are beginning to leave. So, you know, that's working. But now the battle for hearts and minds of the Russian population begins. If Putin sells them this idea that they don't need a McDonald's, they don't need Coca Cola, they don't need freedom, liberty, you know, they don't need Western music, they don't need Hollywood, they all they need is, you know, Moscow films and, you know, whatever, Palolikas, whatever they use there, uh, then we're in real trouble. And let me remind you, you know, Russian population is very different. I mean, I don't think we, have any, we stand any chance of actually getting through to the people who live in the villages and rural areas. Mm. But, you know, the fate of that evil empire, let me say that, usually is decided in two cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And mm. that's where you have people with internet. I mean, if Putin wasn't afraid of his own people, he'd just switch off the internet completely. I mean, he doesn't need it. He doesn't even probably use a mobile phone, right? Um, But, you, you know, he's afraid of the people. So he's doing it gradually. He bans the Instagram, he bans Facebook, you know, the next to go would be other social media platforms. He's banning local Russian artists. You know, he's going to ban Western artists from coming to Russia, although it's really difficult to imagine who would want to yeah. go to Russia now. But um, as soon as he's done doing that, as soon as he feels confident that, you know, he can go full North Korea on, on the Russian population, mm-hmm. uh, that's when he gets the green light to kind of do whatever he wants. And. What he wants is incredibly dangerous and terrible to the entire planet, and we have to yeah. remember that.
1: You're absolutely right, and I think you called the right uh, term there because he it is emerging as sort of the a sort of neo North Korea uh, that is. It appears that's where we're headed. I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Former Zelensky advisor Igor Novikov. thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. And you have perfectly set up what we want to talk about next, because still ahead, as big American businesses leave Russia, Russian businesses are moving to fill in the void. Check out the logo of a proposed Russian version of McDonald's. Does that look familiar? But some companies, like Coke Industries, are digging in their heels, claiming that they provide essential goods and services. We'll fact check that claim and more next In a throwback to the Soviet era, Vladimir Putin is saying he intends to seize the assets of the companies that have cut ties with Russia over the war in Ukraine. As ridiculous as it sounds, his goal is to effectively nationalize their businesses, to take them over and operate them under new Kremlin-approved management. To that end, the Speaker of Russia's parliament has reportedly proposed to replace McDonald's in Russia with a new brand of fast food restaurants. But the trademark for that new business may look a little too familiar. Indeed, this, this is the proposed logo for the new burger chain called Uncle Vanya. And yes, they've literally just turned the McDonald's logo on its side. It's almost as funny as the fictional restaurant chain McDowell's in the 1980s classic Coming to America.
5: See, they're McDonald's. I'm McDowell's.
1: Now, that movie was a comedy. It was actually meant to be funny. But Russia's real-life attempt to rip off the most iconic fast-food restaurant in the world, as laughable as it may be, is not meant to be a joke. McDonald's is among more than 400 companies that are cutting ties with Russia, either by pulling out entirely or by suspending their business. But that said, there are still roughly 30 companies that have remained in operation in Russia, including the parent company of brands like Reebok and Carvel Ice Cream, as well as LG Electronics, and surprise, surprise... Coke Industries. As Dana Milbank writes in the Washington Post, people who want Russia to end their war against Ukraine might want to avoid those products. In particular, Coke Industries owns several name brands like brawny paper towels, Dixie Cups, quilted Northern toilet paper, and Vanity Fair napkins. But let's just be clear. Coke's paper towels, toilet paper, and napkins cannot wipe away the blood Russia has spilled on Ukrainian soil. And as President Zelensky said clearly just yesterday, the Russian market is flooded with Ukrainian blood.
4: All Americans company must leave Russia from their market, leave their market immediately because it is flooded with our blood. I'm asking to make sure that the Russians do not receive a single penny that they use to destroy
1: people in Ukraine. And let me just add that the history of Coke Industries is telling. As Jane Mayer reminded us this week, the Koch family started out by building refineries for Stalin and Hitler. In other words, the muck-covered apple does not fall far from the tree. And up next, if you think Putin's unrestrained brutality in Ukraine is something new, you haven't been paying enough attention. How this war is tragically turning into everything Putin watchers predicted. Next on The Readout. In 1994, Russian troops invaded Chechnya to crush the small republic's demands for independence in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. Relentless airstrikes reduced cities to rubble and cost the lives of tens of thousands. Surprisingly, despite the superior military, Russia lost that war. And in 1997, the last humiliated Russian troops left Chechnya, only to invade again. Three years later when president boris yeltsin's newly named prime minister a former kgb operative named vladimir putin launched a disastrous all-out assault that laid waste to the chechen capital of grozny russian tanks rolled into chechnya for the second time and this time russian forces took control after only a few months and installed a kremlin-friendly leader it's the same brutality that we're seeing today putin's army pounding towns and residential areas deliberately targeting civilians Similar to the resistance in Chechnya, Ukrainians are fighting back and still hold Kyiv. And so Putin has doubled down, bombing maternity hospitals and homes, forcing survivors to emerge from the destruction and risk being bombed again as they flee. The dead left in mass graves. The horror we saw in Chechnya— is here again. And joining me now is Russian opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza. And I always am so, feel so lucky to be able to talk to you. I feel like, and you've said this before, and I, I actually got this from you, so I'm just going to say what you said to me back to you. Putin does this because he keeps getting away with it. He got away with it in Syria. He definitely got away with it in Chechnya. So how do we avoid the same outcome that we see in Chechnya, which now is a puppet government? How do we avoid that?
2: Ukraine. Uh, And thank you for reminding your viewers that, uh, you know, the war in Chechnya was Vladimir Putin's original sin. This was how he came to power. And it wasn't just the war in Chechnya. It was also the false flag apartment bombings in Moscow and other Russian cities, which at the time was clear to many people that these were likely staged by the FSB, the Domestic Security Service, which Putin himself headed before he became Mm -hmm. prime minister. And now almost nobody doubts that this was a deliberate provocation. I mean, imagine the mindset of a man who would blow up peaceful citizens of his own country sleeping because those apartment bombings happened in the middle of the night just to create a pretext for war and to sort of ratchet up this, you know, propaganda in order to to come to power. This is how he began.
1: Well, I remember the sort of sickening pictures of him in his little flight suit sort of, you know, sort of triumphantly coming in like he had, you know, won World War II single-handedly and and set himself up for what he's become now.
2: Right. And, of course, the first thing Putin did when he came to power, when he became president after President Boris Yeltsin had resigned— um, he started another war, which was a war against civil society, political opposition, and independent media in Russia. And within the first, literally, few years of his rule, he'd shut down uh, all the independent television networks. He'd ejected the real opposition from parliament. He began imprisoning uh, his opponents. And all this while, and you know, basically transformed Russia from the imperfect democracy we had back in the 90s mm. to the perfect dictatorship it is today. And all this time, Western leaders, both West European and North American, continue to welcome him to summit, shake his hand, Mm -hmm. you know, offer him red carpet treatment and so on. We've talked about this many times. Looking into his eyes
1: and seeing his soul, declaring resets
2: and so on, exactly. And so, you know, this is the way uh, a dictator's mindset works. This is why appeasement of dictators never, never, uh, never works. It's it's not, it's it's always the most horrible idea imagined because, you know, for a normal democratic leader, um, compromise is a good thing, Right. But if you are a dictator, an aggressive autocratic dictator like Vladimir Putin, if somebody compromises with you to you, that's a sign of weakness and that's an invitation to grab more and more. And so after completing his crackdown domestically in Russia, after destroying all the last vestiges of democracy and of the institutions, and checks and balances inside of the country, Mr. Putin inevitably turned his attention outward because in Russia, domestic repression and external aggression you know, are always two sides of the same story. And so... Um, after that, he turned his attention on, on Georgia uh, and, uh, as you know, you know, took away part of its territory. Uh, after that, of course, was Ukraine. And let's not forget what we're seeing in the last three weeks is a horrendous escalation. But the attack on Ukraine actually began eight years ago in February of 2014. And the, the first formal state-to-state territorial annexation in Europe yeah. since the end of the Second World War, which Mr. Putin accomplished in Crimea. And he also, largely speaking, got away with this. And then, of course, the horrible war crimes in Syria, the bombing of Aleppo and so on. And so just, you know, put yourself in his shoes. If he can get away with all of this for 22 years, then why not try what he's trying now? Except I think, of course, this time he tried to bite more than he can chew. And this time, even for those Western appeasers who were willing to look the other way for such a long time, the sight of, you know, cluster bombs in residential areas, the bombings of maternity wards, schools, hospitals in the middle of Europe, even for them, that is too much.
1: Well, so the question then becomes, what do you do about it? Because, you know, this this idea that if uh, Ukraine promises to not be in NATO, he'll stop. If they demilitarize, he'll stop. I mean, why would he stop? He's already, chunk, you know, grabbed huge chunks of the, that country. Why doesn't he just come back for more, especially if they demilitarize? Um, Igor Novikov was just on a little bit before, and he said that Russia is deteriorating into North Korea, and so the question is, what do you do about it? He talked about the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger um, has put this piece out on Telegram where he's speaking with Russian subtitles, trying to speak into Russia, and that the only way to sort of bring down that regime, and you've said this, is from within. Can, can things like that actually help?
2: They can, and I think one of the biggest priorities for the free world, for Western democracies now, alongside obviously, you know, helping Ukraine withstand the aggression from, from Putin's regime, the other priority should be getting the truth to the Russian people, because, uh, you know, in the last three weeks, Putin launched the war not only on, on Ukraine, but also, which is stalling, by the way, as, as you've been reporting all these past uh, weeks. But the other blitzkrieg that he launched, unfortunately, very successfully, was the destruction of what remained of independent media in Russia, including the legendary Echo of Moscow radio station, yeah. which was for so many years, the you know, the symbol of high-quality journalism uh, in Russia, where I had my weekly show until mm-hmm. two weeks ago everything is destroyed. And so the only source of quote-unquote information yeah. for Russian citizens now is state propaganda. And, uh, you know, the only strategic end game to this, the only solution, the only way to stop this seemingly unending streak of crimes and repressions and wars of aggression that Vladimir Putin has been leading is to have this deranged, murderous dictator out of power. Only Russians in Russia can do that. Nobody, obviously, is advocating regime change from, from the outside. Yeah. But what is important is that the free world stands in solidarity with the civil society in Russia and helps the Russian people get the truth, get the objective information about these horrendous war crimes and crimes against humanity that the Putin regime is committing supposedly on behalf of our country. What
1: do you say to the heads of companies like the Koch brothers who say, well, we're we're providing valuable services, we're not getting out?
2: Well, I think they're going to hear from from their consumers in Western democracies. We've seen this. I mean, you know, the, the history of boycotting such regimes is a long and noble history. I mean, South Africa, South Africa. apartheid and then many yeah. other similar cases. So I think those companies that refuse to do this will pay dearly. But what I think is, is also important to, to say now, uh, is that, you know, I very much hope that uh, all those companies, including McDonald's and others, yeah. return to Russia very soon, but not because they will cave in to Putin's dictatorship, but because Putin's dictatorship will no longer be in power.
1: Because it's gone. Uh, I, I want to I note, you, you did note that Alexei Navalny uh, is potentially facing 13 years in prison in um, that, st- that is still coming. We're going to continue following that as well, because he's imprisoning people like yourself who are politicians who are trying to make Russia. And the verdict is coming the on Tuesday,
2: March 22nd. Yeah. Nevada. And you
1: know what? But what South Africa's regime and what Putin's regime have in common? Fascists. They're fascist dictatorships. And that's how we should refer to them. These are not governments of the people of Vladimir Karmerza, Thank you. I always appreciate talking with you. And up next, Karinsky was a second-year medical student from Zimbabwe, studying in Ukraine until she was forced to flee the war-torn country. She is here tonight to tell us about her experience and the discrimination that she experienced at the border. We'll be right back. 3.1 million people have fled Ukraine as Putin continues his barbaric assault on their country. For many of them, it's a heartbreaking journey fueled by fear and anxiety and a little bit of hope that someday they'll be going home.
6: Please do something for us. People are saying in Ukraine... Please close the sky.
5: Unfortunately, all the people in Ukraine, adults and children are suffering from this. We are deprived from everything we had.
6: WE DECIDED TO LEAVE BECAUSE WE HAVE SMALL CHILDREN. MY HUSBAND AND OLDER brother STAYED AT HOME TO DEFEND OUR HOMELAND, OUR LOVELY HOMELAND. WE HOPE THAT OUR FIGHTERS WILL BE BACK SAFE. GLORY TO UKRAINE AND TO OUR HEROES. WE HOPE THAT ALL THIS WILL END SOON AND WE WILL RETURN HOME.
1: FOR OTHERS, THE JOURNEY IS EVEN MORE daunting BECAUSE THEY ARE BEING HELD TO DIFFERENT STANDARDS.
4: When we got to the boundary of Hungary we tried to cross,
7: we said at the the first boundary we said only Kenyans crossed there, (laughs) we never the blacks cross there.
1: Joining me now is Corinne Sky, a second-year medical student who had to flee Ukraine and was subjected to discrimination at the border as she tried to make it back to England. She founded Black Women for Black Lives, which is trying to raise money to help rescue black uh, people who are, especially students, who are being discriminated against while trying to flee Ukraine. Um, Corinne, thank you so much for being here. I saw you on Tiffany Cross's show uh, and wanted to nick you for my show as well um, mm-hmm. because your story is so harrowing. I want you to just tell it to our audience. How difficult was it for you to get out of ukraine
4: hi joy um thank you for having me so um i left ukraine the day after Kiev was bombed so the day before um we'd actually attempted to leave but the queues were so like ridiculous trying to get everything um together in order for us to leave because we knew the journey would be long our aim was to go to poland but um The next day we left um, Dnipro and we headed for Lviv. So Lviv is like the closest place uh, in Ukraine that's like nearest to the borders. So initially um, when we like went on Google maps to see how long it would take, it was like, I think it was 10 hours. The journey ended up taking us 24 hours to finally get to Lviv. And on the way um, we met so many military checkpoints, there was armed police officers, there was, um civilians, like the journey was harrowing and very, very long and stressful and then, once we finally had it once we finally got to l'viv, so I missed out a chunk of the story throughout the entire process. Um, I was coordinating other students to leave, so mm-hmm. um, I'd created telegram group chats in which we could all communicate, and I was trying to get information to um, other students, particularly African students, um, on information on how they could leave. Because once we knew everybody had to leave because the war was was happening, um, a lot of the concerns that people had were, oh, I've got a Nigerian passport, I've got a Zimbabwean passport, how will I be able to enter the border into Mm -hmm. Poland when I don't have an EU passport? So once the information has been released in real time, I was getting the information and I was um, sharing it in the group chats because one thing I don't think a lot of people realize is like the information dissemination we were getting in Ukraine was very, very slow. Mm -hmm. A Secondly, um, the information wasn't accurate to us because as a demographic of minorities weren't being recognized as, you know, people in Ukraine, the information was just for Ukrainians. So I was really adamant to find information that was um, specific to African students in Ukraine. So once um, Poland had released the information that, oh, um, everybody's welcome to come to Poland, no matter what your passport is, I was Mm -hmm. um, sharing that information, looking for embassy numbers and trying to assist fellow students, whilst also fundraising on the road from Dnipro to Lviv. Once Mm -hmm. I finally reached Lviv um, with my group, um, we met some other girls who had also left the Nipro, and they had told us that on their way to Lviv they'd um, been harassed um, racially they weren't allowed to board the chains and they were like physically pushed off the chains right. and it was just so upsetting that's the first instance I'd had that you know yeah. people would actually experience racism trying to leave a war because in my mind right. I would assume that in a time of war people wouldn't be trying to they would be thinking we're all one and we're all in this situation together it wouldn't be segregation but as history has shown us time and time again whenever there's times of turmoil black Mm -hmm. people are always last so um, when they were sharing the experiences with me I was just like terrified and then in the telegram group chats people who had now reached the polish border were telling us that they'd either been returned from the polish border or Mm -hmm. they had um experienced Mm -hmm. violence from um local ukrainian people or violence amongst the queues so from that we were just like okay you know what i don't think poland is a good idea let's aim to go to um, romania
1: Unfortunately, I have to interrupt you because we are out of time, but I wanted to make sure that people find your website. It's called blackwomenforblacklives.org. This is the website. You guys should go on there and read more of Corinne Sky's story. I wish we had more time, and we will invite you back on. Corinne Sky. thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and we're so glad you're safe. Um, That is time to read out.
0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go
3: beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.